And now uh, on to our exciting introductions. Today, I welcome you to the 2021 Dr. Jeffrey Clavin Endowed Lectureship, which is supported by the Portland Clinic. This lectureship, recently established in 2018, seeks to bring an exceptional educational program with particular emphasis on lifelong learning and support of high value care. Dr. Jeff Clavin, as many of you know, joined the Portland Clinic in 1977 and served all those years for his patients at the downtown branch. In 1994, he was named the Chief Medical Officer, a role that he continued through his retirement in 2017. During Dr. Clavin's leadership, the Portland Clinic greatly expanded to its current five branches, as well as the opening of the Alberti Surgery Center in Tigard, and remains an extraordinary partner for us here at Providence. He's proud of his Portland Clinic roots and feels honored to be part of the strong legacy of this independently owned clinic, which celebrates its 100th anniversary this year in 2021. And now I am delighted to introduce this year's guest speaker, and I truly cannot begin to capture the contributions that he has made in the short time allotted here. Uh, Dr. Jordan Tapero, Senior Advisor for the Global Health at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Tapero first joined the CDC in July 1992 as an Epidemic Intelligence Officer. He is a Rear Admiral and Assistant Surgeon General in the U.S. Public Health Service, holds three American Board certifications, a Master's in Public Health from the University of California, Berkeley, and an academic appointment as Professor uh, with Emory University's School of Medicine. As Senior Advisor for Global Health, he provides strategic, scientific, and programmatic contributions to the Office of the Director's Management and Oversight of a $3.7 billion annual budget. And this work represents four large dynamic divisions, including the Division of Global Health Protection, the Division of Global HIV, AIDS, and Tuberculosis, the Division of Parasitic Diseases and Malaria, and the Global Immunization Division. Working across more than 60 CDC country offices and with multinational organizations, non-governmental organizations, philanthropies, and other domestic and global partners. Dr. Tapero has broad experience in managing complex humanitarian disasters and public health emergencies, including the H1N1 influenza pandemic, Haiti's devastating earthquake and subsequent cholera epidemic, as well as West African Ebola. He's authored or co-authored over 260 peer-reviewed publications, as well as textbook chapters on a variety of infectious and tropical diseases. And we are absolutely delighted to have him join us today. Uh, without further ado, Dr. Tapiro, thank you. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be speaking with you today about uh, my experience and experience of my colleagues at CDC for the 2014 to 2016 West African Ebola epidemic. Um, I will state that there uh, is a slight correction in my introduction, which was thank you so generous. I'm now with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and I retired from the Centers for Disease Control and the US Public Health Service. So at the end of the talk, I'll be giving my reflections uh, also as a non-government official, which I am now and throughout the rest of this talk. Thank you. Fabulous, thank you. So, if I can get things to advance for me. So I thought I'd start off uh, for the audience in case everyone's not familiar with the biology of Ebola virus ecology. So the virus is thought to reach humans through an entoic cycle, and this cycle is periodic. We know that uh, the uh, flavivirus that is its closest cousin, Marburg, that its reservoir is the African fruit bat, and that these bats are cave-dwelling bats, and that was established during the Bundabugio, uh, uh outbreak period for Ebola and Marburg uh, virus outbreaks in Uganda back in 2008. We believe, or at least we hypothesize, mm -hmm. that tree-dwelling uh, um, uh, fruit bats are the likely source of the uh, Ebola virus reservoir, but it's really hard to trap bats in trees as opposed to in caves. Uh, so it hasn't been uh, definitively shown that Ebola virus reservoir is uh, the African fruit bat. Nevertheless, we believe that it is so, and there have been uh, five Ebola viruses to date that have been uh, named as species. 
And you can see those on the left. The most common one that we see is Ebola virus Zaire. And uh, the cycle is that somehow or another, the bat, probably because it gets sick and dies, is then uh, scavenged and uh, either eaten by uh, dukers or other kind of antelope species or by non-human primates. And then humans inadvertently have interactions with uh, these animals that are ill and die, and then bushmeat is uh, consumed by humans. And thereafter, you have an established human-to-human -human transmission cycle until the outbreak can be controlled. So the distribution of Ebola virus outbreaks uh, is largely sub-Saharan Africa. And before uh, 2014, there had been no known Ebola viruses uh, outbreaks in West Africa. So the outbreaks that you, you see here along West Africa from Cote d'Ivoire all the way to Senegal uh, were the first outbreak of 2014-2016 of Ebola virus uh, outbreaks detected in those geographies. That includes Nigeria as well. To date, there have now been 31 Ebola virus outbreaks. So there have been another five outbreaks since the uh, end of the 2014-16 Ebola virus uh, epidemic or pan, uh, regional epidemic. Um, and I'll touch on a, the two ongoing ones at the very end of my talk. So let's see if I can advance. Peter's being a little finicky here. So let's just first talk about Ebola virus transmission. So uh, a human either inadvertently uh, you know, grazed by a flying bat that was infected with Ebola virus or consuming bushmeat returns to the community. And um, uh, unlike uh, um, coronavirus SARS-2 that we've been hearing about where there's asymptomatic transmission for about 40% of all infections, for Ebola virus, you really are not transmiss transmissing the virus until you become uh, not only febrile, but probably febrile with some wet symptoms, either diarrhea, vomiting, or uh, bleeding uh, diathesis that happens with these hemorrhagic fever viruses. So you have people in the community that are ill and having contact with another individual while they're symptomatic, with febrile for sure, and usually with wet symptoms. And then they go on to spread to other people because the outbreak hasn't been detected and family members take care of people in sub-Saharan Africa with fever quite commonly because malaria and other infectious diseases that cause febrile illness are quite endemic. And so before you know it, you've got multiple cases before the outbreak is detected and the virus races through the community. So how do we stop the spread? So once an, an outbreak is detected, the virus um, uh, is sequenced from a blood sample and shown to be confirmed as Ebola virus, and then things go into high gear. Um, if you go back to 1976, it was Centers for Disease Control, as well as WHO, who did the first uh, investigation of Ebola virus uh, on the Ebola River in what was then called Zaire, but we now call Democratic Republic of Congo. And over the years, as uh, by the time we got to 2014, the 27th Ebola uh, virus outbreak, um, there had been NGOs or non-government organizations that had stepped up to provide direct patient care. And CDC uh, largely provides laboratory support for diagnostic confirmation surrounding these Ebola treatment units that are managed by uh, MSF in partnership with the Ministry of Health that is hosting MSF for these outbreaks. Um, and then WHO is also in partnership uh, with CDC and uh, the ministries of health to control the spread of these outbreaks. So stopping the spread requires that we stand up contact tracing and Ebola treatment units so that when we can take, identify that infected person and get them into an Ebola treatment unit where there's personal protective equipment and we maximize that individual's chance of survival because the cause of death is uh, usually um, severe uh, dehydration and loss of blood volume. And so supportive care with oral rehydration solution as long as the person can keep it down. And then when really required and dangerous for the healthcare workers is the administration of intravenous fluids. And hopefully the survival rate goes from maybe 10% up to maybe 30, 40, even 50%, depending on, on the, the species that's causing the outbreak. 
And so rapid isolation is critical. And so this is a photograph uh, taken in Liberia in 2014-2015. And we know that um, communities of Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, which were predominantly affected during uh, this regional epidemic, were countries that at, over the previous 10 to 15 years had each gone through civil war and government distrust and unrest. And because of that, a whole generation of children uh, really were out of school. And so high literacy rates in Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. So the messages about symptoms of Ebola and how to encourage the populace was really critical to getting uh, a foothold on this epidemic because there were so many confusing stories about what its cause were and how to prevent it. So we first needed to let people know if they had any of these symptoms, they needed to seek care at an Ebola treatment unit where they could be isolated and separated from others until uh, a PCR test uh, could be confirmed as either Ebola or not Ebola. And if confirmed, then they would be given the best opportunity for survival through supportive care. And so communication is really important in this situation, uh, especially in West Africa, where like in almost all cultures, uh, there is the tradition of family members wanting to participate in the burial of their loved ones. And in West Africa in particular, in Guinea and Liberia, Sierra Leone, the family members take the body and bathe the body and put the, bod the body in, in clothing and they do a lot of hands-on uh, touching and many of the villagers in the community also mm -hmm. have hands-on touching of the body. And the most dangerous uh, route of transmission is through uh, burials that are not safe. And so establishing the concept of safe and dignified burials mm -hmm. not only took time, but because Ebola virus had never been seen in West Africa and there was no prior knowledge or sensitization of the community, a lot of confusion in the community that was going on. Nevertheless, the communication is critical to get that individual to get into the Ebola treatment unit and prevent ongoing transmission in the community as well as the loved ones taking care of the sick individual at home. And so communication is really critical to get that individual out of close contact with family members and, and those in the community. If not, and that person doesn't trust or believe the public health efforts to provide supportive care for them and to protect them from their family members, they go underground in the community and they continue to infect others who unbeknownst are now uh, you know, infecting others and spreading. And so by the by the 2014 Ebola outbreak in West Africa, the largest outbreaks had been several hundred people in the previous 26 uh, outbreaks in Sub-Saharan Africa that were outside of West Africa. And because the, the community, communities along West Africa had never seen the virus and were not aware about how to prevent its transmission, and there was so much confusion and misunderstanding, uh, there were by the end of this outbreak, over 28,000 cases and 11,000 deaths. And so when the public health response stood up, West Africa, in particular Liberia, Guinea, Sierra Leone, have some of the highest rainfalls in the world. So during the rainy season, getting out to communities on unpaved roads to provide supportive care was incredibly challenging. And this slowed down a lot of this response in the first six to eight months. Uh, CDC, WHO, and other responders often had to uh, bushwhack, travel by foot, take a jar of peanut butter, and uh, go on their way to uh, villages in, out, in, in suspected outbreak areas to do not only education, but also uh, collect blood specimens for confirmation and set up temporary uh, Ebola isolation units in, uh, in hope that they could stop further spread um, in rural villages because it was widespread in all three countries. And so the idea of getting an infected person into an Ebola treatment unit and their family members of close contact, not in contact with others in the Ebola treatment unit with known disease, but in the holding or screening area where they could be separated uh, from each other until we knew their the status of their blood test for, by PCR for mm -hmm. Ebola as being able to go home or stay in uh, under observation uh, until they could either go home or be transmitted to the ward, uh, uh, transferred to the ward where actual patient care is required. 
And so um, this is what these makeshift uh, hospitals look like in Ebola treatment units, tents with just a mattress, and then uh, the healthcare workers uh, come in, in full PPE and provide care. And the laboratory support for Ebola outbreaks is essential. I mean, if you don't have the ability to provide laboratory confirmation by a PCR test, uh, then there is no way of knowing whether the person whose uh, specimen is being tested should be sent home or should be retained in screening or uh, transferred to uh, the Ebola treatment unit section of the, of the ETUs. And as I mentioned, burials are critical and they're really very difficult because most communities have not been sensitized to safe and dignified burials. They don't understand why the bodies are being taken away. They don't understand why they can't participate in, in their burials. And so there were countless uh, reports of the deceased being dressed as being alive and just inebriated and escaping uh, public health uh, efforts to separate the bodies from their loved ones. So we need to transfer uh, those for signified day burials and have a way for family members to participate in those burials. And that is where they can see the burial, the, the, the burial taking place, know that their loved one is buried there, but not actually have hands-on participation in the burial. So with a lot of communication and community effort, you educate the villages on why if there's a death in the community, the team is going to come and collect the body, take a specimen to confirm whether it was or was not Ebola, assume it was. And these burial teams um, are made up of seven to eight people. Um, remember, this is Sub-Saharan West Africa, um, about four to six months a year. It's heavy rainy season. It's very hot, very humid. And wearing all of this PPE is particularly difficult and dehydrating. So a burial team of eight people can do probably a maximum of six burials uh, per day uh, safely. And you can see that there are people at all four corners of the burial uh, tarp. And then you see a gentleman here on the right who's carrying uh, a wand in his right hand, and that is chlorine. And so uh, that person and another person uh, with the same equipment uh, sprays down the household from where the body was collected uh, with bleach and does uh, cleanup of the, uh, of the fluids that are highly infectious. And then also looks for any spillage of body fluids from the tarps and also looks for breaches in the personal protective equipment of the people that are directly involved in uh, picking up uh, and transporting the body to the truck for movement to burial. And so the burial teams, the trucks, and social acceptance was critical in getting ahead of this because probably the biggest augmenter of transmission in late 2014 and the first half of 2015 was unsafe uh, burials uh, in the community. And so the burial teams, you know, take to a designated area and ideally with plastic uh, barriers that allow family members to see where their loved one is being buried, but not uh, participate in touching of the body. So now we're going to switch into some of the epidemiology now that we have the background behind this. So this uh, has the, still holds the, um, the, the label of being the largest Ebola outbreak in history. It started um, in this area of Guinea, this forested area, and then spilled over into Liberia and Sierra Leone from the rural areas of Guinea, and then made its way to the capital cities of Monrovia, capital city of Conakry, and the capital city of Sierra Leone on the coast. So it is the first Ebola epidemic. So it's not just an outbreak, an epidemic, because it crossed multiple borders that the world had, had ever seen. And so again, it was the perfect storm in Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. There were decades of, of civil unrest. There was a weak public health infrastructure because of a decade of civil war or more in each country, a lack of infection control in healthcare facilities, in fact, in rural areas and in most of the capital cities, the healthcare facilities lack piped water as well as even uh, bars of soap in rural areas. Uh, very little uh, in the way of border control. And so these unrecognized uh, cases mm. of febrile illness with wet symptoms would reach poor crowded cities and thereafter 
these cities were all linked as all capital cities are to global air transportation. And so uh, the um, West, the um, WHO uh, has under the international health regulations, the responsibility to work with host countries to determine whether or not public health emergency of international concern has been, is, it needs to be declared. Of course, the current uh, SARS-2 coronavirus uh, pandemic is a public health emergency of international concern. Uh, prior to that, um, the first three uh, PHICs since 2005 that were declared uh, were the um, H1N1 pandemic of 2009 and the resurgence of polio virus uh, in around 2010 or 11, and then the West African Ebola epidemic. So it was the third PHIC declared, uh, and we are now in the fourth uh, since the international health regulations were revised in 2005. So I was uh, CDC's team lead uh, for the three countries when the uh, epidemic uh, was identified and the PHIC or the Public Health Emergency of International Concern was declared by then Director General Margaret Chan. One of the first things that, um, that we observed was that uh, almost all of the NGOs, the non-government organizations, as I mentioned, MSF is uh, sort of sees it in their quiver as, as a priority and they have pre-deployed tents and equipment to uh, respond to outbreaks that usually start with, you know, 5, 10, uh, 15 uh, people, most of whom are healthcare workers early on. And um, because this outbreak, uh, by the time the public health emergency uh, of international concern was declared, we were uh, a good six months into this outbreak. And there were literally thousands of cases in rural as well as in uh, the capital cities. And so getting this under control uh, wasn't going to happen um, overnight. And the first thing that I observed in Monrovia was that um, MSF Belgium had about 280 beds available. And just by the volume of people waiting to get in outside, uh, they needed at least 1,000 beds. So how would they scale up? Their ability to scale up um, was about a doubling capacity every two weeks. And that was not gonna get it because we were in an exponential uh, growth phase. Uh, the community deaths were not only uh, dangerous for those who would uh, pick up the deceased, but were also very confusing and disturbing to the local population. Uh, and uh, fear uh, spread throughout and people in the capital cities early on raced uh, to uh, their home villages and rural areas, areas further spreading uh, infection. There were early efforts of quarantine and we're all quite familiar now because of the uh, uh, coronavirus outbreak that we're all uh, currently experiencing. Uh, the word quarantine has a powerful word. Um, we've gotten very used to it uh, in the last you know, 15 months, uh, but uh, quarantining for Ebola virus uh, often uh, was misunderstood as its purpose. People felt that they were being trapped and were not allowed to escape and would get infected if they were under quarantine. And so there was rioting uh, in Monrovia uh, when the Ministry of Health imposed quarantine for uh, trying to protect its citizens. But by then it was quarantine in our opinion was not uh, an uh, an effective public health tool because there was widespread community transmission throughout rural and uh, capital areas. What was needed was education of the public, expansion of uh, contact tracing teams, uh, isolation of people with wet symptoms until they could be tested, and provision of care in an increasing number of Ebola treatment units. So our role in West Africa, that's uh, Director Tom Frieden in the front and myself behind him when he made a, a visit to uh, Monrovia a couple of months into the epidemic. And our, our role is was to support Ebola treatment units and train healthcare workers. And our biggest fear was that uh, we could not expand the pool of healthcare workers 
that traditionally respond to Ebola outbreaks in large numbers. As I mentioned, if they're detected very early, MSF usually provides the care and isolation early on. When the larger outbreaks happen, you see many NGOs other than MSF step up and respond and provide care. And usually, you know, they're well-funded for these kind of responses and they step up uh, in large numbers. And oftentimes when the outbreaks are small, we have to turn NGOs away saying that we have the support that we need. But in this case, because of the widespread transmission throughout the countries and the literally thousands and thousands of cases, the NGOs all ran, ran home out of fear that they would get infected and not have the ability to have humanitarian waiver to return to their home countries for care or that they would run out of personal protective equipment because there was hardly enough uh, in country, even in the capital cities, to provide supportive care in the first six months uh, with widespread transmission. And so there was a, a training at Aniston facility uh, in Alabama to train uh, healthcare workers who had never worked in Ebola and get them hopefully more comfortable with responding to isolation care and treatment and step up the number of NGOs that would return to theater and participate. So the activities that we participated in were uh, training, um, laboratory confirmation, expanding the pool of educated uh, contact tracing workers, um, educate leaders in communities to encourage their citizens to not fear um, Ebola treatment units and efforts to protect their uh, loved ones, uh, overcome the stigma and promote uh, safe burials, um, evaluation of Ebola virus vaccines. There had never been an Ebola virus vaccine till this outbreak, and it was uh, thankfully provided by Merck at the encouragement of former CDC director Dr. Julie Guberding, who had joined uh, Merck to work on vaccine issues and uh, encouraged uh, her, the leadership there to uh, take social responsibility and produce uh, an Ebola virus vaccine that ended up showing efficacy while this uh, outbreak was going on. And then strengthen border preparedness and exit screening uh, from airports and entry screening from US air, at US airports. So a lot of work went underway and I'll touch on a few of these. Now, these three countries were not uh, surrounded by uh, a great wall uh, that could prevent transmission from escaping the three uh, countries and going to its neighbors. And in fact, there were several introductions, but I'll tell you uh, about the first one that was the scariest one. Nigeria is the most populated country in Sub-Saharan Africa with over uh, 240 million uh, people. And there was an introduction of a doctor uh, who uh, was providing direct patient care, developed febrile illness, and was wanting to get to a place out of fear where he could get better care. And so he made his way uh, to Lagos by international flight. And Lagos is a hub uh, for Sub-Saharan West Africa, uh, Republic of South Africa, uh, Nigeria and Kenya, as well as Ethiopia, are the three countries that have the most air travel. And so getting to uh, Lagos, Nigeria with wet symptoms was high risk. And this individual ended up infecting several others while transiting uh, from Monrovia to Lagos. And you can see the multiple chains of transmission that happened. Fortunately, um, the Epidemic Intelligence Service that trains epidemiologists at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States, began developing a similar training curricula and programs uh, called Field Epidemiology Training Programs or FETPs. And Nigeria had had a FETP program in place since about 2009 and trained many epidemiologists, many of whom had gone into the private sector or clinical care or were not working as epidemiologists, but we're working as clinicians. But that cadre of 200 uh, epidemiologists uh, stepped into gear and supported those actively in the training program and were able to stand up an Ebola treatment unit quickly and isolate uh, um, and stop the epidemic early on. So they had identified 894 contacts. They completed 19,000 contact tracing visits 
implemented a social mobilization strategy that reached 26,000 households in these at-risk communities identify, and then established an Ebola treatment unit in just two weeks and were able to, to stop ongoing transmission. If not, with all that international travel and 280 million uh, people, uh, we might still be responding to this uh, regional, pen, regional epidemic. So this was hailed as a success story and um, we'll touch on the global health security agenda towards the end of my talk, uh, but this led to um, uh, promotion of field epidemiology training uh, programs and support for them as a critical component uh, to a strategy known as global health security agenda to prevent further such outbreaks. So containing the epidemic in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea uh, was a challenge to say the least. Um, Centers for Disease Control, uh, my colleagues that are mathematical modelers, uh, were able to uh, look at the data from uh, contact tracing and Ebola treatment units. And here we are in 2015, you can see by August when the PHEC was declared and you get into September, you have exponential growth. And it was estimated that there would be a half a million to one and a half million cases over the next three months, three or four months, if something uh, you know, heroic uh, wasn't going to happen to get uh, healthcare workers to come to West Africa and stand up the bullet treatment units and assist in isolation and protection and expansion of contact tracing teams and burial teams. And so uh, I returned uh, from Liberia in late September and President Obama made his first and only visit to CDC while I was there. And I had the uh, honor of getting to present uh, to President Obama the situation. And of course, Dr. Frieden uh, was really hoping that uh, President Obama would uh, bring the US military uh, to the theater. And the reason why was not to provide patient care, not to do any diagnostic testing, not to transport specimens, not to put our troops at risk, but to provide satellite phones and transport of personal protective equipment and to help build Ebola treatment units in safe environments. And there was a lot of, of consternation, I'll say this, within uh, the US government. Uh, but by the time uh, our briefing ended, uh, President Obama uh, you know, stood at CDC and did a press briefing and mobilized uh, 3,000 US troops to provide the kind of support that we said we needed to bring the NGOs to theater uh, knowing that if they became ill, they would have a strong chance for survival uh, because we also uh, stood up uh, a volunteer effort within the 7,000 uh, healthcare workers that are the U.S. Public Health Service to stand up an Ebola treatment unit just for expatriate healthcare workers as well as for local healthcare workers in the three countries. And so this is in Monrovia, the US Public Health Service manned Ebola treatment unit for Liberian healthcare workers, as well as expatriate healthcare workers. And so personal protective equipment, building of ET, uh, rapid expansion of the Ebola treatment units available and satellite phone and communication, and then assistance with humanitarian waiver, although uh, the US military didn't actually transport anyone. There were several uh, humanitarian waivers to Europe and to the US don't have time to get into them today, but uh, you may recall them. And then provision of care, uh, expansion of chance for survival among healthcare workers who did get infected. And so what a difference a year made. Uh, you can see from these images that uh, the number of days since the last confirmed case of Ebola virus and the numbers back in September of 2014 when uh, uh, President Obama made his announcement that the U.S. military would provide uh, logistical support and help ramp up uh, CDC's training of, of U.S. healthcare workers to mobilize to the field. And you can see that the numbers start uh, declining by the colors moving uh, down. And then by December, uh, the number of days since the last confirmed case by the close of 2015 had dramatically uh, dropped across the three countries. And so part of this uh, uh, convincing argument, if you will, to get our US government leadership to uh, 
uh, help us uh, in mobilization was the modeling that projected exponential growth without further increase in uh, the public response. And then Modely predicted a rapid decline if the interventions were rapidly implemented. And this was the uh, uh, corrected and the bottom line was the uh, uh, uncorrected uh, reported cases through mid-January. And so with, with the interventions, what happened in reality on this bottom uh, graph showed that our modeling was in fact fairly accurate in terms of the number of cases that would happen absent a global response, a particularly strong one and profound one from the US government uh, that resulted in uh, this uh, epidemic being able to be controlled. So those were the weekly, weekly cases in Liberia and Sierra Leone. That was Liberia, that's Sierra Leone. And this is what we saw in reality. So how do we get to zero? So, you know, we're, we're looking here at week 13, you know, there's 52 weeks in the year. So these uh, numbers represent the week of the calendar year. And so this is calendar uh, year um, 2015, as we get up to 5051, and then we roll into 2016 here. You can see that Liberia in green had the first peak in its epidemic around uh, late, um, October, early November, and then Sierra Leone followed with an even bigger and broader peak. And the uh, uh, United Kingdom's uh, Department of Defense was a big responder like ours in, in Liberia. And the French provided uh, similar support uh, in Francophone uh, Guinea. Uh, and for some reason, the Guinea outbreak never reached the same uh, peak uh, as we saw in Liberian in Sierra Leone, uh, but more of a sputtering uh, uh, epidemic curve uh, by comparison. And then this was probably uh, one of the most surprising uh, findings uh, of the outbreak. Um, so we can look at the sequencing of the genome of the virus and it uh, towards the uh, later end of the outbreak in late 2015 and then throughout 2016 when the numbers dropped substantially, numbers of cases, we were able to sequence the majority of new infection strains per individual and help it assisted the field teams in trying to understand how transmission was occurring and where it was occurring. And if you look at these, these colors, you can see that there is a linkage between cases known contacts with cases and you would you would you would see patterns of a similar virus in a community and then there was this woman sfw in a community that um there was no uh ebola virus transmission occurring in her village and the last case that had occurred some six or seven months before and the sequence of her virus matched another village many, many hundreds of kilometers away that had a uh, male uh, member of that community who had a brother-in-law and a sister who both acquired Ebola from him and they expired. He survived. And then five to six months later, this individual traveled to this village where this woman was uh, identified and we didn't know about these other three yet until the epi investigation was done. And they uh, were sexual partners. And so we had hypothesized in previous outbreaks because we know that many viruses, HIV, herpes simplex, that many viruses can uh, survive in a latency uh, in the body and that they can um, come back later. And it had been hypothesized that it could be possible for Ebola to do that, but it had never been uh, seen um, in the first 26 outbreaks that had been investigated. And the closest hypothesis that it was biologically plausible came in a CDC investigation in Gulu, Uganda, several years before the West African outbreak occurred. Um, and in uh, that uh, investigation, it was identified that men who were survivors without febrile illness and back in good health if they donated semen, that you could find PCR evidence of Ebola virus in their semen. 
Yet, um, because of that, there had been ongoing surveillance or monitoring in communities of survivors, particularly male survivors, to see if there was any evidence of ongoing transmission. And we never saw it over the next four or five outbreaks. So we thought it was biologically plausible, but in survivors, probably not enough virus to actually cause transmission. And yet, here we are in West Africa, and we had no other way to explain this uh, 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 transmission other than sexual transmission. So we were able to get a donated specimen from uh, the male who had had sex with this uh, villager who was now deceased. And he not only had PCR evidence of the virus, but uh, laboratory uh, uh, isolation of the virus matching the same sequence. So uh, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And over the next six months, you know, the Ebola outbreak of West Africa was really half of 2014, or sorry, tail end of 2014 and all of 2015. And then by the time you get into January and February of 2016, the number of cases, because of the response that was engendered in part by logistical support from the US and a huge number of Ebola treatment units staffed by non-government organizations, many of them from the United States, not just MSF, uh, resulted in, in, in this diminishing number of cases. And then the last you know, five, six months of the outbreak, whether it was Guinea in red, 13 cases, in Sierra Leone, uh, nine cases, and in Liberia, uh, I think it was 11 cases, were all attributed to sexual transmission. Uh, by sequencing and uh, you know many days if not months uh, apart and this led to what is now routine in Ebola virus uh, outbreaks is that we have to provide support for survivors um, and so uh, these this persistence declines over time uh, what we saw in West Africa uh, for during this outbreak was that um, the longest uh, evidence of virus in a male survivor's uh, semen was about 500 days, but most were gone within two to three months. And so we knew that, you know, the, the likelihood of transmission from a male survivor is extremely low. I mean, it, truly extremely low. But when you have 28,000 cases of infection, half of which are male, uh, all of a sudden, these rare events aren't so rare when the numbers get that high. The next thing I wanted to talk about that I touched on earlier was demonstration that the uh, Merck's uh, Ebola virus vaccine uh, showed and demonstrated efficacy. And that efficacy um, was very high and uh, became uh, in, uh, uh, applied through ring vaccination. So where there is a case, all of the contacts of the case and all of the healthcare workers in that village or perhaps larger geography receive the vaccine and ring vaccination. Now there's not enough global production of this donated vaccine for us to vaccinate a city or a country. Uh, and so this ring vaccination strategy is currently used uh, in all the last five ongoing uh, outbreaks. So immediate ring vaccination uh, 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 resulted uh, in demonstration that vaccinated persons uh, are largely protected if they are not exposed to someone with wet symptoms a good 10 days or so uh, after their, their dose. And so the total uh, numbers uh, by the declaration of the end of this outbreak uh, was around uh, over 28,000 uh, and 11,000 deaths. And this uh, led to um, a discussion within uh, the US uh, government, in particular uh, Centers for Disease Control. We had been speaking about international travel, uh, increasing movement of people across borders, and concerned that the world was not ready and that the, the country that was the least prepared was the weakest link in the chain. And until all countries had capacity to respond to these kind of events, the world would be at risk. And, uh, this was amplified by a Liberian gentleman during the outbreak who came to Dallas, Texas, 
uh, without symptoms uh, and developed symptoms while visiting family members there and went to a, a high-end uh, hospital uh, in Dallas where he was sent home with uh, some Cipro and uh, suspected diarrhea traveling illness and he had Ebola and infected a couple of nurses and it really caused quite uh, a storm uh, in the media uh, that if we sent all of these healthcare workers as we had proposed to West Africa that they would all bring Ebola back home. So we really had to address safety of the American people if the military were going to provide logistical support and literally thousands of US healthcare workers were going to volunteer to provide uh, a life-saving uh, uh, um, services to uh, countries that they had never been to and, and really uh, had, had, had no reason to volunteer other than their good spirit. And so we had to set up exit screening across the three countries with uh, screening and a questionnaire as well as checking for temperature and symptoms. And more importantly, um, Thanksgiving of 2016 and Christmas of 2016, we had literally hundreds of US healthcare workers returning home for the holidays on flights. And we had to funnel all US travelers into five international airports if their itineraries were uh, linked to uh, origin uh, from Guinea. Liberia or Sierra Leone, there were no longer any direct U.S. carrier flights from those countries. So they mostly went through Europe. And we provided a, a, a care kit. We gave everybody a flip phone that was, you know, throwawayable after 21 days and enough time on the phone to last for over a month and a thermometer and uh, contacts in the, by state and U.S. territories where to reach out to public health authority upon arrival and declare where you were so that you could be reached at least once, if not twice daily by a local public health authority to ask you about your signs and symptoms of illness. Most states did their reporting online. And if you didn't report, uh, then public health authority would look for you and you would be quarantined if you did not participate. I could tell you a few scare stories that happened here. Uh, but there isn't time, but largely it was a very uh, successful program. Um, and it led to uh, not only screening at the airports, but if we did identify a returning healthcare worker who had uh, symptoms of febrile illness and needed to be isolated, we had to set up uh, uh, a tiered structure for providing uh, care and isolation. So uh, with funding from Congress, we were able to stand up 55 Ebola treatment centers throughout the country and have a mechanism for uh, transport uh, uh, and isolation of people identified in more rural communities rather than in the larger cities that, uh, that hosted these uh, Ebola treatment centers that we stood up. Fortunately, we never really had to provide care in any of them. Care was provided at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, which was among them uh, for one returning healthcare worker uh, to his home in New York City, as well as uh, at Emory University, which has an upstanding uh, full-time Ebola treatment unit or uh, severe uh, um, uh, um, suspected illness because of CDC being right across the street and needing to provide uh, supportive care for anything that our responders might uh, inadvertently and unknowingly bring back to the United States. So overall, the numbers were that there were 3,522 deployments, uh, many of them recidivists who volunteered many times to go back. We had 4,000 CDC staff involved in the response. Uh, domestically, there were over 36,000 travelers who returned during this uh, regional epidemic in West Africa. And then internationally, the numbers go up uh, even more uh, for uh, the number of uh, CDC staff that deployed to West Africa, the number of hours put forward. This was truly a um, uh, heroic effort, and I feel for my colleagues still at CDC who are responding to COVID, uh, which is even a much bigger problem. This one was stressful enough. And I don't know if you all remember, but Ebola virus spiders were named as Time Magazine's uh, Person of the Year. And this led to a uh, global health security agenda with the concept that uh, we are interconnected uh, through international travel and particularly air travel and that 
the most remote of viral infections can be anywhere in the world within 36 hours, and that we had to do a better job of protecting every country to respond to outbreaks everywhere. And um, we can see here that uh, um, the, the population in, in millions continues to grow, uh, particularly in urban areas. And so these viruses identified in rural settings when people living in urban settings go back to their home village and may bring something back to the capital, which makes its way through international travel. Uh, well, now, of course, the airlines are shut down because uh, the pandemic finally reached us through what we feared. Uh, but at the time, these were our, our forecasts that international travel by 2020 would reach 1.6 billion uh, flights uh, per, per year. And so we had, you know, concern about a number of public health threats that if we had better uh, global health security around the world with ministries of health having the ability to quickly and identify and respond to clusters of suspected uh, infectious disease outbreaks, uh, perhaps uh, we could uh, do a better job in preventing them from becoming not only uh, country outbreaks, but regional uh, epidemics versus global pandemics. I mentioned earlier that the international health regulations are the WHO's authority with its 197 country or member states that are all signatures of this treaty that they would comply with the international health regulations. Sadly, um, the revision of the international health regulations after SARS in China in 2003, the first SARS uh, outbreak, uh, led to uh, a revision of those international health regulations, but because resources are, are not available in most low and middle income countries to meet the guidelines of the regulations, only 30% of countries are internationally, uh, are, are compliant with current international health regulations. To address that, um, Dr. Frieden was a strong proponent of this, along with uh, Margaret Chan at WHO, and the U.S. contribution to global health security was contribution of financial resources to the global health security agenda. The concept was three big buckets to prevent and detect and respond to outbreaks wherever they occur, hopefully first by the local Ministry of Health, and that there were a number of benchmark targets across um, these uh, 11 disciplines uh, that could be and should be invested in to build every Ministry of Health's capacity to uh, do outbreak control and response. And uh, fortunately, uh, because of the 2015-16 uh, uh, response to the Ebola epidemic, uh, the U.S. Congress um, gave uh, Centers for Disease Control uh, 1.77 billion out of 6 billion of a global health uh, emergency agenda fund, and about uh, we put that money into about three different buckets. The first was international Ebola response to end the epidemic in West Africa, because this money came uh, around uh, the close of 2015, early 2016, uh, to um, invest in global health security in 30 countries around the world, eight of them in West Africa, where those are some of the poorest countries in the world and the weakest ministries of health. And then finally, domestically, I talked about those 55 hospitals and the infrastructure required to expand U.S. domestic preparedness for serious uh, pathogens, not just Ebola. And so at the close of the Obama administration, we had 30 countries that were being invested in. And this was meant to be a several decades uh, investment to expand uh, Ministry of Health capacity including the development of field epidemiology training programs so that you had shoe leather epidemiologists that could go out and respond to these kind of outbreaks. It also had a growing number of countries supported through uh, mostly European countries that were investing in global health security agenda. Um, it had at the White House, uh, former uh, retired Admiral uh, Timothy Ziemer uh, leading uh, global health security agenda uh, from the National Security Council. Uh, and then, uh, President Obama, on his way out the door, uh, briefed the Trump administration uh, that one of the greatest threats to American security was the threat of a potential future pandemic, especially a respiratory pandemic. Uh, and then uh, the National Security Council under uh, 
uh, Bolton's leadership uh, dismantled the office and there's no further funding for the global health security agenda in recent years. Let's just transition now to current Ebola virus outbreaks. There are two that are ongoing right now. As I said, there have been five since the close of the uh, 2016 uh, West African uh, Ebola uh, epidemic. And there's one going on right now in, in Guinea. There have been five cases detected since its detection in March 17. Right now, there's still, despite the experience they had in 2014 through 16, there's still a lot of uh, community fear. Uh, and very, uh, they're very early in, in, the, in responding to this outbreak, but right now the number of contacts that are uh, under contact tracing uh, and uh, being uh, isolated with wet symptoms is, is very low. And so we can expect this outbreak is gonna go on for several months, hopefully not years, but uh, several months because uh, the resources to support Ebola epidemics now are so drained by the world's focus on COVID uh, that um, these outbreaks are becoming increasingly hard to respond to. Uh, the fatigue uh, of all public health around the world dealing with COVID is leading to it becoming increasingly hard for WHO to mobilize staff to uh, respond to Ebola. We can look and see what the travel routes are. So here we are, remember this is Guinea that wraps over the top of Sierra Leone, Liberia and adjacent to Ivory Coast. So we're, WHO is currently trying to expand uh, preparedness along the borders and to do the contact tracing and stand up the Ebola treatment units and do the community outreach and social mobilization required to educate communities and get community and village elders to, uh, to, to engage. And here in Guinea, uh, uh, the number of healthcare workers and villagers in locales where uh, cases have been identified is here. So the vaccination has really been uh, a critical uh, tool to controlling outbreaks. I think without vaccination, uh, the outbreaks that we're seeing um, in, in uh, DRC uh, um, and Guinea uh, since the close of the, of the 2016 uh, regional, pan, uh, regional epidemic that I just spoke to would be um, much more serious and worse. Um, there's also an ongoing outbreak in DRC almost near the end. You declare an outbreak over when you achieve uh, 42 days without uh, any suspected or confirmed cases. And it's 21 days is the incubation period. So two incubation periods without evidence of disease and uh, investigation of alerts, meaning public health uh, um, contact tracing teams go out and investigate febrile illness in the community to ensure that it is not Ebola virus, that, that you then can declare the, the outbreak over. So hopefully this outbreak that has been going on since 2018 in DRC will finally come to an end of interest. The outbreak in Guinea that I, that's ongoing now and early in its, uh, in its um, evolution, as well as this one in DRC um, over a year and a half old, which we hope is near the end of its evolution, uh, were both attributed to sequencing of viruses uh, that highly suggest that these outbreaks are due to sexual transmission of latent virus, latent virus in the survivor beyond the 500 days. Again, rare events, but we can expect to to see more of these and the 2018 onset now, 2021 ongoing outbreak in moldering outbreak in DRC and that of uh, recently identified in Guinea are sequence attributed uh, to uh, outbreaks that were occurring there um, uh, in 2017 in, in DRC and um, in 2014-2016 in Guinea. I'm going to close in the last couple of minutes. I think we've only got uh, a couple of minutes left um, with the epidemiology update uh, for COVID. Just to show uh, how these uh, pandemic preparedness is so critical. We are, we are now um, in uh, um, week of April 5 to 11. During this week, over 4 uh million uh, cases were reported, the highest number uh, ever for a weekly period. 
and nearly 76,000 deaths. Cumulatively, we're closing in on, as of last Sunday, on 35, 135 million cases and nearly 3 million deaths. And these are the six WHO regions. And you can see that the world, the globe, is experiencing uh, a major uptick in, uh, in cases, as well as the black line be representing deaths. India for the last two weeks has surpassed Brazil as the country with the most cases per week. Brazil for three weeks before that surpassed the US for the first time as having the most cases per, per week. And the United States uh, numbers are dropping uh, presumably because of our vaccine, not uh, the community's uh, necessary uh, adherence to public health and social measures. Um, again, we can look at these curves uh, across all six regions and you can see that the world is seeing largely an uptick. The downturn in Sub-Saharan Africa is really hard to make sense of, uh, in large part because testing is not uh, available uh, in, in rural communities. So we really don't know what to make of the data coming from Afro. And then I'm going to close with these variants of interest and variants of concern. There are currently three variants of concern that we've all heard about in the press from the UK from, uh, that were first detected in Republic of South Africa and in Brazil. But, you know, these are not the only variants and WHO and its, uh, its uh, uh, partners uh, around the globe are constantly looking at signals. There are currently six variants of interest that we hope will not become variants of concern uh, that are under investigation. There are 13 additional new variants awaiting assessment, five that have been investigated and, and found not to be uh, variants of, of interest or concern, and there are six uh, that are undergoing additional monitoring. And with that, uh, I think I've used up the whole hour, but I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you. Many, many thanks, Dr. Tapiro, um, for these extraordinary efforts and certainly for this fascinating talk today. Um, you have truly filled the time with so much information. I think many of the questions have been answered as you have gone along. Um, I want to respect the time and may choose just a couple last parting questions here uh, before we wrap up for the day. Um, many thanks from our audience for this great talk. Um, a question from one of our infectious disease specialists who comments, we have seen replication capable virus for Zika for up to three months. Were the cases of quoted 700 days, simple RNA fragments or truly replication capable for Ebola? And you may have answered that in this this last segment on sexually transmitted infection, um, but any comments there? Yeah, of course, you know, um, when there's an ongoing outbreak investigation, um, then the laboratory support on the ground is not only capable of doing PCR testing, but also capable of doing sequencing or at least uh, proper uh, uh, custody of chain of a specimen to get it to a WHO reference laboratory. Um, that laboratory is an institute, a Pasteur laboratory in Senegal, if they don't have capacity to do the sequencing locally. Uh, but because the outbreak in DRC has been going on since 2018, and Guinea has previously uh, had incredible experience, there is laboratory capacity not only to do PCR testing, uh, but to bring, if not already present, sequencing. So sequencing is being being uh, done increasingly uh, as, as, as part of uh, Ebola and Marburg outbreak response. And uh, what we can see is that not all males, unfortunately, are willing to join a survivor cohort and be followed and collect semen every couple of weeks to see not only if they're PCR positive, can you also try and isolate uh, the virus and show that uh, there's still live virus there. Uh, but um, those that do, uh, we have a pretty good, you know, uh, experience that that you can you can almost safely assure that uh, men will be clear of PCR and isolation within three months. But again, you know, rare events are showing us that biologic plausibility holds beyond our wildest fears, and that you know these latest two outbreaks suggest that. Uh, you know, in Guinea, there was someone who's been harboring the ability to eventually transmit live virus since 2016 and uh, in, in DRC since 2017. Uh, now, do we have a smoking gun? Like I showed you that uh, investigation um, 
during my talk in West Africa? No, we don't, but it's hard to understand how a virus, when there's no transmission going on for years, and the sequence matches nearly identical to the strain at the close of an outbreak years before, could be explained by another cause. Great, Great. thanks for your comments there. And I think I'll leave us with just this last question. Um, you commented on the strategy for ring vaccination and just wondered if there are any efforts or thoughts or capacity that vaccination might be more broadly available for Ebola in the coming months or years. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm currently more focused on, on uh, COVID uh, uh, work through the Gates Foundation, so I don't know the latest on Merck's efforts to uh, pursue uh, FDA approval and EU approval for licensure. Uh, right now, it is my understanding that it remains a vaccine uh, under use under emergency use authorization, uh, but hopefully licensure will happen. Um, and what we really need is a Gavi-like, um, uh, excuse me, Global Alliance for Vaccine Initiative, a Gavi-like structure that will ensure uh, that uh, countries have uh, the ability to request and receive donated vaccine because the countries that that need this vaccine certainly can't afford uh, to pay for it. Right. Well, thank you. And certainly thank you for all of us for the work on COVID vaccination. Um, no doubt a tremendous priority. Um, I really appreciate you joining us today. What a special opportunity. Thank you. Sure. And I'll, I'll put a summary of our lessons learned from, uh, this was an MMWR that we published in 2016 on the outbreak. I'll put it in there now for those who want to read more about the West African epidemic. So thank Perfect. you all. Have a great thank day. Thank you. Take care.